Memory. How's your memory? Anybody else getting old? I, never, I actually never thought I'd say that, but I just did. So memory is an amazing thing. I mean, if you didn't know this, you need to know it. I mean, and it's, and it's amazing how much we don't realize how amazing our memories are. <clears throat> Without knowing it, right? Without any of your awareness, you know, kind of the stuff happening under the hood. Your, your brain is constantly pulling together all sorts of associations, right? Interacting with the environment, pulling together all sorts of associations from different parts of our brain, different regions of our brain, from past experience to help us know how to respond to the future. And I, this is with little things, like little tiny things, um, like walking or swallowing, um, riding a bike, driving a car, you know, walking into a room, recognizing something's not quite right, maybe I need to get to safety. That's what's happening. Memory. Right? It's an amazing thing. Right? You know nothing about it. You don't know that that's happening. It does, you don't feel anything while that's happening. Right? My, the adjustments that I'm making right now right, are all sort of gathered up and based on my previous experiences of interactions with some of you individually and certainly um, corporately. But then, in big things, now here's the rub, right? In big things, in big things, like anniversaries, getting gas. I mean, really, like putting gas in your car. Um, really, I'm the only one. <laughs> or your kids' names. Right? We forget that stuff. I mean, it's gone. Bye. And it, you know, and it can be real sort of context specific and you know, kind of on choice. Like, you know, when you were five years old, if somebody asked, where's the candy? Maybe I know. It's on the in the third cabinet to the left of the sink on the top shelf in the back behind the sugar that you don't know that I know that it's there, but that's where it is, right? But same kid, right? Five years old, you. Where are your shoes? I don't know. <laughs> no. Or when you were, well, maybe this was just guys. When you were a teenager, <laughs> how do you forget to take a bath? <laughs> How's that happen, right? But we did it, right? Gone. Memory. So one time, Tracy and I got into a fight. And, uh, and I, am not, I am not even playing. This is exactly what she said, okay? She goes, <laughs> so, well, okay, this is a rough paraphrase. She said, because it wasn't, it wasn't good. She said, I want you to pretend like you're somebody that I'm sitting, you're sitting across from in a session. What would you say to them? I forgot. Right? Memory. We forget 
the most important things at the precise times that we absolutely need to remember the most. Now, David knew that, right? He talks about this in Psalm 103, right? And it's just two little words. He says, forget not. I mean, it's not like the whole of the psalm, but it was vital for a people, particularly at this time. It meant the difference between hope and despair. So the place where this psalm is found in the whole, you know, corpus of the psalms, remember, it's, the psalms are sort of broken down into five books, right? And this psalm falls into book four. It holds the same sort of importance with where it falls, not just David's words, but where it's placed in Psalter, right? This book of the Psalms. It holds that same importance. Psalm 4, I mean, or book 4 is like uh, Psalm 90 to 106. Sort of that's the big uh, corpus. It's the next to last one. Uh, but this one's a picture of sort of a ro more robust faith, right? This is a people that's um, looking to the future. They're hoping in the future. Now, they're looking to the future, hoping, to the fu hoping in the future, but they know they have no king, they've got no temple, they got no sacrifice, right? They're on the tail end of, of this exile, right? We're coming out of exile. That's sort of where this is situated. And they're hoping in the future that God promised. 101 to 103, Psalm 101 to 103, those, form, those three psalms are like a little packet. And what those three psalms do in this larger book, book four of psalms, is it gives some inclination, some sense of this hope that there will be this Davidic king. I mean, people are coming out of exile. We got no king, right? We don't even have a lamb. We don't have no temple. We don't have no sacrifice. But these are giving some inkling of some hope that God is going to do that. Right? David's psalm provides the reason for this hope. Psalm 103 does. And he's basing it on this idea that the people will have a king and a kingdom. He's basing it on the faithfulness of God, the God who reigns, the God who's on his throne, the God who is king. That's what he grounds this in, in this psalm. Now, all of that's important because that shapes the way that we read this psalm. I mean, us here now today. It shapes the way we read it because the king that David hoped for, right, Christ, is himself the very reason that there is any hope that David can have at all. You get that? So the king that David was hoping for, Christ, Supposed to be in the future, there's this king coming, God reigns, going to establish his king, but boom, big surprise, right? That king is himself God, and he fills in this, the substance of what we're going to see in this psalm. So Paul began, I mean, excuse me, um, uh, David begins in verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Right, it begins, the psalm begins, verse 1, with blessing. And verse 22, 
It's going to end with blessing. It's the exact same phrase. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And at the end, bless the Lord, O my soul. Right? So, you know, David is sort of pronouncing this praise and adoration for God. So there's a lot of optimism. There's a lot of anticipation that he's, ground, he's basing this on, this hope. We can trust in the Lord. Incidentally, that's, you know, Yahweh, right? This covenant, covenant Lord. This Lord, his name, right, is holy. That is, he's high and lifted up. That's going to be similar to later on when he says, God has established his throne. David starts out um, incredibly optimistic here, right? This is the reason that we can hope, right? And we can bless our God for this. We can praise him and honor him. Right? This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is certainly our vocation. You know, this is the meaning of our life. But blessing him, what does that mean? And this is what David's going to spell out. It means beholding the story of redemption, right, that's unfolded, right, that God is, these acts that God has done, beholding these things and giving him praise and honor for it. Right? But again, David knew that was precisely the problem, right, because in order to behold these things and give this praise and honor, we've got to keep it up here. It's got to be there for us. We've got to be able to go to it, to recall it. So David says, don't forget. Right? The power of sin and death, right? Exile and enslavement, you know, that has a nasty way of distorting and blurring and fading things out. And so David says, don't forget. We bless the Lord. We praise him. We honor him. He is our hope. But why? Let's remember. Don't forget. And he begins in 2 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, or you read it and you go, I don't know, I don't have any idea what that eagle's wings or eagle. Right? This is the stuff that he begins with that he wants. Now, this is just the beginning. Right? But this is the stuff that David wants them to remember. But let's sort of walk through this slowly to see you know, what, he, what he doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to forget iniquity. Do you see those words there in that first, in that first, uh, first few verses? Iniquity, diseases, and the pit. They've got to remember that, right? Iniquity is sin, but more than that, it's this, the weight of guilt for sin. That's the idea with iniquity. What makes us unclean and what brings judgment that excludes us from God's presence, right? Iniquity. Can't forget that. Diseases, David says, you can't forget that. That's important. Now, these are physical diseases, right? The, and the, uh, you might remember from Exodus 15, 
God says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. All right, what's immediately in view here is that disease and iniquity, they go together. Right? In fact, disease is the big alert that there's a problem. That there is iniquity, that there is sin. We have an issue. It's the visible manifestation. It's this light on the dashboard. That's, that's sort of the, 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 the weight that it carried. And that's why David recalls it. And then the last one is the pit. This is the idea of that prison, their death. Being in prison. I mean, where have they been? Right? For 70 years. They've been in exile. That's prison. That's enslavement. But at the same time, it's also a death. Right? Pushed away, away from God's presence. That's the connotation that goes with that. The deadness of being cut off, with, uh, cut off from God. But David, in bringing these things up, he's calling his people, he's calling us to remember and not to forget that that's not our end. We do that by remembering his benefits, right? The Lord's benefits. And that's important. So don't miss this because this is going to run through the rest of the psalm. It's really important. He's calling them to remember the Lord's benefits. It's really easy to go benefits and go right to the verbs, right? But we can't miss the pronoun that comes in front of all of those verbs, right? Five times. David says, who, 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 who. That's deliberate repetition. Driving home the point, it's him. It's him that we don't need to forget. He doesn't want us to forget the acts of the Lord, definitely, for sure, no doubt. But more than that, he doesn't want us to forget the Lord who has acted. That is who we need. That is who this people needs. That is who this people is dependent upon for any of these promises come to come to fruition. It's this person, the Lord, that is the hope. What does the Lord do? He forgives iniquity. He doesn't count sin against you. He heals your diseases. He relieves it. He removes it. Right? He redeems from the pit. He delivers from enslavement. He crowns with steadfast love. That is, his covenant faithfulness surrounds, that's what crowns me, it surrounds his people. Sort of this protective idea. And he satisfies with good so that they're renewed. That, that is, the Lord brings back to life. Y'all track with that? These are the things that the Lord has done for them. But here's, here's where we sort of make a little shift here. This hope for king has already come. So there's more that we need to remember. Just a little bit more. David isn't seeing the whole story. Right? That's the point. He's anticipating future promise. That's the idea. 
but we stand on the other side of what he hoped for. And so we have to include that in the stuff that we remember. And it's really, really important. Right? And, he, and as we remember this, what we're seeing within these first five verses is this plight of the people that he talks about, iniquity, disease, and uh, pit, the Lord, and the verbs, they all come together in a unique way. First of all, what we're seeing, what we need to not forget, is what God our Father has done for us through Christ our King. We can't forget that. First thing is that Christ identifies with us. And I, we don't usually read this stuff this way, but listen to this. What, what he's recounting. Christ identifies with us in this first five verses of this psalm. He knows more deeply and with more clarity than the readers of this psalm or us who we are and where we are. God's son, he steps into flesh. Just imagine, you know, this is like sort of the backyard pool in, I don't know, you know, the middle of winter. Right? Algae, yeah, not going to go swimming, really cold. God's son waves in to that. He steps into flesh. Jesus emerges into the world that Adam made by his disobedience. What you have, though, in Christ is the fullness of deity, not hidden by smoke or veiled right, at a safe distance from the people, not because it's going to hurt God, but because he'll hurt them, right? Fire, that kind of thing. You don't have that in this case. You have Jesus here becoming one of us. He identifies, and, there, and I'll bring in some of the other words that you'll see in this psalm. He identifies with our sin, verse 10. In Psalm 108, he identifies with our sin. That's our uncleanness, our separation from God. He identified with our iniquity. You know, think about this. In stepping into flesh, Christ feels the crushing weight of the guilt of humanity. Right? It becoming human, you know, entailed within it, feeling that. Because that's our experience. He identified with us in our transgression, right? The, a rebellious people. Christ knew that pull of the flesh. He knew what it was to be tempted. He identified with us in our oppression, right? Joining us in the pit, enslavement. He knew what, the, he knew what that meant. Because in becoming human, he becomes one of Adam's kids. That's who, that's who everybody was before Christ, right? And that's who everybody is that's outside of Christ now, Adam's children. He enters into that, becomes one with us. Under the, under the tyranny of death, right? the attacks of Satan trying to get allegiance from him, the accusations of humanity right? attacking he experienced all of that. He identified with us, uh, verse 15 and 16, we'll see this in Psalm 103, 
this, the, grass and, the grass and the flowers. That's what you and I are. Grass and flowers. That's our experience. Gone. Transience. He gets it. He identifies with us as dust. Not, not just oh, oh, frail humanity. I mean, there's this general sense in which we as human beings, we're frail. Right? We're limited. We're finite. But it gets worse right, because of the fall. Christ identifies with us there. All this Christ knows because he's one of us. And he had to be one of us. He had to identify with us in order to make this hope that David had any possibility at all. That's what he had to do. Through Christ, our Father has forgiven us. This, this forgiveness, this healing, this redemption. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. As 1 John says, he is faithful and just to forgive. That comes through Christ. Those benefits come through Christ. In that crowning of loving kind, I mean, excuse me, steadfast love and renewal. Right? Paul echoes that in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's what was going on in the exile, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, kindness towards us. This surrounding, this gushing sort of river of faithfulness and mercy and grace comes to its climax, its necessary climax in Christ. So David's going to move on from here, right? He wants to show uh, what the hope is. That he has, why he's blessing the Lord, why he thinks this thing, thing is going to come off. Look at the benefits that the Lord has given to us. Look at the Lord who's given the benefits. But he moves on from there to history, sort of to ground this in history. Why does he say this? Where does he get this stuff from that God does this, forgives and heals and redeems and all that? He goes through history, and again, he's going to show the focus here is that the Lord, the Lord who's given these benefits. Or better, he's showing us the Lord that these benefits give us access to. In uh, one, Psalm 103, verse 6, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is one of those moments where David puts it, he puts like, you know, you know, hundreds of years of history into like three verses. Captures it all. He starts off with Exodus and Sinai here. He recounts the history, I mean, history of Israel beginning there. Righteousness and justice, right? God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. What is that? that that's God's vindication, righteousness. He vindicates a people. He judges enemies. 
so that his people go free. Oppressed people go free. That's the exodus. That's what God had done, has done. He does it through Moses. And he defeats Pharaoh, right, who opposed him. Verse 7, he jumps to Sinai. David's talking about um, um, uh, Moses uh, when he goes on the mountain to get the commandments from the Lord. But he uses some key phrases here. He says that God, in verse 7, reveals his ways to Moses and his acts to his people. That's recalling Exodus 32 through 34. I know Ben has talked about that a lot, and I'll just cover it here briefly. But it's important for us to look at it because this is sort of really inching up to a really important part of David's argument, why he can have this hope. It's grounded in history, the historical work of God's redemption. In, verse 30, I mean, in chapter 32 of Exodus, Moses, he goes up on the mountain, gets the commands. People get, the people get restless, right? They start saying, you know, where's he at? We don't know. Right? Let's, uh, let's, let's, make some, let's make a God and we'll go back to Egypt. Everybody remember this? You know, just... The Lord tells Moses, because Moses is up on the mountain, the Lord tells Moses what's happening. You know, he's like, Moses... I'm fixing, to, I'm fixing to do something, right? Moses, he does something for these people that's important. He intercedes for them twice, even. In 32, 31 through 32, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, if not, here's what he says, please Blot me out of your book that you have written. And God's still sort of ready to pour out wrath. Moses takes another run at this, a second intercession. Right? He says in verse, or chapter 33 of verse, um, Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, if, you have found fa- if I have found favor in your sight, please. And here's where he echoes, or actually uh, Paul, uh, David picks up in Psalm 103, he says, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And Yahweh said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Now those two things are really important here. At the beginning, Moses acting as mediator, right, between God and Israel in those moments. Because God's saying, look, I'll take for you and I'll start all over again, you know. And Moses says, but that's, but that's not your promise. That's not your promise. Please. And God yields. And Moses says, show me your way, show me your glory. Why? Because Moses wants to know, all right, so what, what are you going to give me that's going to confirm this promise that you've made to me? The mediator. 
What can you do to show me? And then Exodus 34, 6, this is what God does. Remember, this is the one where he takes Moses and he sort of is going to show him his show him his way, show him his glory. He tucks Moses into the cleft of a rock and then he passes by. And this is what this is what was revealed. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin." But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, hang on to that. But just remember right now this first part. The Lord, the Lord, a God, of mer- God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's what Paul, I mean, that's what David, that's what he stresses in verse 8 of 103. He shows us why. We can count on these things. David is sort of grounding his hope in the same hope that Moses had. Let me do it this way. What what David has done so far in verses 1 through 4, he's shown us not to forget. He's urged us not to forget that we have a hope because of the Lord's benefits. Or because in in the Lord's benefits, he gives us himself. And then in 6 through 8, he says, forget not. Don't forget this stuff. Because you have hoped in the Lord who gave himself to you. This God who gave himself to you overflows with steadfast love. That is covenant faithfulness. That is who he is. And so that is what he gives. David stresses this. Well, we can transition here again to us because that hoped-for king has already come. There's more to remember. We see the steadfast love of the Father and the Exodus and this mediatorial business, this mediator business with Moses. We see all that come together in another unique way. Through our Father, Christ our King, right? He comes with forgiveness healing, redemption, all of that stuff. But what is, how does that happen? What is that based on? Here's Colossians 1, verse 12. Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The inheritance. That's the benefits and the God that we get. Right? This covenant faithful God. But why do we get those? Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We've been moved from one place to another, not from one land under the tyranny of a human king. Not that. That was this sort of physical expression This manifestation of a bigger reality going on. We've been removed or moved from one one sphere, one body to another. The body of Adam, right? That body of sin, that old self 
where sin and death reign. You know, where Satan has power. We've been rescued, removed, and placed into this body of Christ. The power of another, the rule of another, and the kingdom of another. That's what the Father has accomplished through his Son. That's what David was grounding what he was saying in, ultimately. And then David goes on really quickly. In verse 9, he continues to sort of walk through history. He says, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his, keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, what's interesting about this verse, I ask you to remember, remember Exodus 34, this, the name of God, right? right? He's abounding in steadfast love, gracious, merciful. And that second little part, though, verse 7, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What's interesting is that gets de-emphasized in this psalm at the end of exile. We already knew God's judgment. But what's Paul, I mean, what's David stressing here? He's stressing the mercy of God that flows from this steadfast love, from this, you know, said, from this covenant faithfulness. What do they get? God is not going to, he's, he's saying, holding out hope here. We, we, things are going to turn around. We're going to get these promises. God's not going to chide us forever. You're not going to be this anger forever, right? And then there's this nice little word play. He benefits us in a way that is completely contrary to what we are supposed to get, right? Remember, forget not his benefits, the benefits. That's the same word that he's using here. He does not deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to to our iniquities, <laughs> right? That's the big sort of reversal. You don't get what you're supposed to get. We often think of God in the reverse. You do. I know you do. I know I do. We often think of this God that we've been brought to through these benefits as one who is ready to pounce. He's ready to crush you. He's looking at you, and you're looking at him. And what you're thinking in your head as you look at him is, you know, he doesn't think a whole lot of me. And you're thinking that he's thinking, you know what? I knew you were going to be a huge, giant disappointment. That's our tendency. Our tendency is to think that he is waiting to crush when we blow it. But as Sinclair Ferguson said, that's sort of this sort of remix of the lie in the garden, right? Remember where God said to Eve, or Adam and Eve, right? You can eat of every tree, everything, all of it, all of it. Just don't do this one. And by the time Satan gets done, you would have thought God would have said, there's a lot of stuff here, but you better not touch this one. I tell you what, buddy, if you touch this one, you're gone. You're out. In fact, I have very little hope that any of this is going to turn out well. So I'm just, I'm just going to wait here. 
right, with the belt, because you're going to blow this. I mean, is that, is that, is, am I the only one that looks at God like that sometimes? Well, okay, maybe more than sometimes. Really? But that's the thing, right? Here, when the people are in exile and they don't know if things are going to come together, right? They know their history, right? David knows the history. He's not blind. He's not, I mean, he wasn't stupid. The editors of this sort of final corpus of the Psalter, right? Putting this thing together. They weren't idiots, right? The whole Psalter follows this flow of Israel's history. They got it. What's amazing, what's amazing is here, when they need this great hope, when they're looking for where this hope is going to come from, they find it in this God, that same God that we all sort of look at and say, he hates me, he hates me, I suck, you know. I just give up. But that's not, that's not what David is talking about here. What do they get instead? What do they get instead of this sort of, you know, final destruction? Let's just let you die and pass away. What happens? Listen to verse 11 through 18. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But in the steadfast love of the but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. I mean, do you see sort of this reversal? I mean, there are these contrasts throughout all of those verses, eleven through eighteen. With with man's sin, right? With this iniquity that he's been talking about, what do you have? What's the contrast? You have this incredible sort of vertical contrast. As high as the heavens are, all the way up there, right? That's how, that's how high God's steadfast love is. And, uh, that's another way, what he's saying is his steadfast love fills the, wor- the earth. Or we could, yeah, his steadfast, because the heavens, he's not, he's talking about, you know, it fills the universe. It's, there's sin. Yes, but his steadfast love fills the universe. There's all this iniquity. I'm guilty. Yes, but there's a steadfast love and it fills the universe. That's what Paul is hoping in. Right? He takes the contrast of our transients, right? Yes, we're like this we're, because of sin, right? We're, we're like this uh, um, we, uh, flowers in the field. It's here today, gone tomorrow, right? Sort of the wind blows and it's gone. Yes, but God's steadfast love, it's eternal. It's from everlasting to everlasting. It has no end. None. It doesn't run out. It doesn't stop. Your finiteness, your finitude, your mortality, 
your sin. It doesn't dry up all of a sudden the steadfast love of the Lord. It can't. It can't. And I love this comparison, right? We've got our sin, right? Sin, iniquity, those people who deserve wrath, all of that good stuff. What do they get? They get a father who's compassionate. They get a father who's compassionate. Now, you need to get this. The passage is saying, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion to those who fear him. Okay? Now, don't read there, who do it all right. Right? Don't get this reversed. Please, don't get this reversed. You know, this, David is not saying... If you do really well, right, if you, if you really get it right, then this uh, enormous resource is available to you, the steadfast love of the Lord. That's when it's going to come. That is not, that's not the argument. Right? That's, that's, that's Eden after the fall. Don't do that. Get this order right. It's a people recognize this father that I have in all of my sin, this father that I have, he is compassionate. Let me go to him. Do you get that? It's a motive for us to go to him, not for us to get it right. Or look at this, look at... Um, Oh, hang on. See, I can't see. Verse 14. This is an important reason. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For, here's why. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Don't mix that order up. It is not because I'm dust, right? I'm, I'm a participant in this fallen world. I'm shot through myself with struggles with sin. I got to get it together. I got to really fear him so that his steadfast love will pour down on me and his compassion will be given to him. That's not the order. What David says here is the reason that he is like a father who shows compassion, is because he already knows you. He already knows you. He knows your frailty, just those things that are part of humanity. But dust, that phrase, he knows we're dust, that's like Genesis 2, Genesis 3 stuff. He knows what happened. He knows the fall. He knows what that did to us as well as what we do as a result of it. He knows all of that. That's what motivates him to have compassion because he sees that's my creation, right? They need me. 
And so I will go. And I will give this to him, them. Well, here's what's beautiful. And I love this. I couldn't put two passages together, and I've used these. I don't know. Well, tons of times in talking to people. And it's amazing. You know, it's amazing in, in sharing, you know, that psalm, that part of that psalm, and, and where Christ our King fits into this. It's amazing the looks that you get, right? It's like glazed over. Talking to people that they look like, they're sitting on the edge of the chair, and, and it's like they want so badly for that to be true. But it's so hard to feel like this is true. With Christ, with Christ our King, right, we, have, we have something new. Our Heavenly Father has compassion on us. Right? He knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. And then His Son, right, enters into that dust. And because he has entered into that dust, he says something, or the author of Hebrews says something very similar to this psalmist, David. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Don't get that backwards. We don't draw near to the throne of grace when we get it right. We don't get grace and mercy because, you know, we punched our card as we're approaching the throne and it shows pretty good job. That's not it. You have a savior, right? You have a king who can look at you in all of your crap really it's It's interesting. I think I've said this before in counseling people, especially we're Christians. Well, especially Christians. How often folks will say, oh, I know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. Oh, I know that's wrong. I know that's wrong. Oh, I know I messed up. Oh, I know I blew it. Oh, I know that. And 
What I want to say is, I believe you love Jesus. Can we talk about what's wrong? I believe that you think that what you did was wrong, that you know that it was awful, but you realize that you disobeyed God. I get it. Thank you. I, I, I trust you. I trust you. Please, can we just talk about it? But you see, you see what's happening, because you do it and I do it, right? We start hedging. We start hedging because talking about that stuff, you know, is, is really hard. I mean, the stuff that makes us really vulnerable when we've really blown it, being very honest about that, it's hard. It's hard for all of us because it's exposing, right? We feel naked and we feel a crushing weight of shame that goes with it. But what this passage is saying, Hebrews 4, right? What Psalm 103 is saying is two things, really. God is saying, I already know. And for me to help, we have to talk about what it is. But for you to talk about what it is with the Father... You've got to trust him. And what you're going to find is steadfast love that, is, that fills the universe. Steadfast love that has no end. You've got to trust him. You've got to know that when Christ speaks to you, He's not saying, really, was I not clear enough? I mean, they put it in red. <laughs> could, you, could you not see it? Tell, tell me, is there some part? Tell me what you don't understand. I'll try to make it crystal clear this time. That's not what he says. You know what he says? His, his, his priesthood, right? His exaltation priesthood. That doesn't mean that you have a Jesus that goes, well, I'm glad I'm getting out of there. That, it, was, it stank. I mean, was it stank? Is that right? It smelled. It was awful. Those people, good night. No, that's not what he says. You have a high priest who says, I get it. I get it. Doesn't make it right, right? No, of course not. It doesn't make our sin right. It doesn't make the things that we do excusable. But you have a high priest who says, you know what? I I'm one of you. I know what all of those experiences are. I get it. But what I want you to do is trust me. I know, I know what that pull to go that direction is like, but you've got to trust. Just trust me. Trust me. Come to me. 
That is the Savior that you have. And all of this is grounded. I said at the beginning, you've got this you know, name of this Lord, holy, high, lifted up. That's the predominant idea. And here in 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That is what David was grounding everything on. That that God, excuse me, that that God who is covenant, shows covenant faithfulness. He's absolutely committed to the promises that he has made. He shows this steadfast love, filling the universe with no end. That God is the God who reigns and is on his throne. And David is saying, that is why we can have this hope. Well, with Christ, our king, the hope for king having come, we need to remember more. Romans 1, 3 through 4. Paul, I mean, uh, Scott's talked about this. Paul says that this gospel was promised beforehand, beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, that is the father's son. And who is this son? What, what, had, what was the deal with him? Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. That's what all of this rides on. That's where all of this has been leading. What's fascinating is what David was hoping for, this future king. And he was grounding that hope for a future king in the reign of this covenant Lord, Yahweh. What was veiled to David, though everything that he said was based on it, though everything that he said was absolutely grounded in this, was that that covenant Lord and that king would be one. That the hope for king, by, by what he had to do to be declared, right? Announced, not just announced, but made king. Son, that's what son of God is. Is to be raised from the dead. That is the ultimate foundation of David's hope. For those promises, the, fulfill, the, hope, the hope for uh, fulfillment of promises. That's the grounding for us that these promises have been fulfilled. Christ suffered for our sin. He's risen and he is on his throne, seated in the very throne room of God. And we, through him, have been brought into that God. And that's why at the end, David says, sort of in this sort of exaltation, moving from himself the rest of creation. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord, of the, uh, excuse me, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. That's the angels, right? Heaven, bless the Lord, all his works, and in all places where his dominion on the earth, bless his holy name. What else would we say? When we have a God like this.
don't get all of this backwards. You have a God who has shown steadfast love. He is faithful to his covenant, and he has demonstrated it, poured it out in his son to bring you to himself. People of God, believe this. Trust him and rest in it. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that you will um, work these things into our lives. Strengthen us by them. Grant us a hope in your son that sustains us. And Lord, by your spirit, empower us. Fuel our hearts to glorify and praise you for the God that you are and all that you've done. In Christ's name.